Welcome to the Eco Interviews, where we amplify the voices of eco warriors from across the world. My name is Fiona Martin. I started the Eco Interviews as a way to speak to people who are involved in helping tackle the climate crisis we find ourselves in. I don't know about you, but the enormity of the problem can be overwhelming. What can one person do? But as I read and explored different facets of the problem, time and time again, I came across people who are making a positive change. From farmers to parents, business owners to academics, we are not a single isolated person. All of our efforts together add up to something amazing. So I want to share these stories as a chance to educate myself and my listeners and create a global community of people who value nature and humans as part of it. What can you do to help? Start by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or directly on the website at ecointerviews.com. That's www.eco-interviews.com. Leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us reach more people. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends. Join us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you're so inclined, we have a Patreon account set up at patreon.com forward slash eco interviews. I hope you find these conversations as interesting as I do. If you have any suggestions for topics or speakers, please reach out to us on social media. Your support is appreciated. We're all in this together, so let's figure it out together. In this episode, we're speaking to Mike Ginger, a cycling advocate in Taunton, England. Welcome, Mike. Welcome to the Eco Interviews. How are you doing this evening? Very well, thank you. Yeah, I had a good day out walking on the Quantock Hills in Somerset. So, yeah, had a lovely day. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, we're excited to have Mike Ginger with us. I'm going to introduce you briefly for our audience and then we will start our interview. So, Mike Ginger has had a long standing commitment to sustainable travel issues, clean energy and energy conservation, growing food, and lower impact consumption. He finds it regretful that the media and political process has been slow to recognize deep environmental problems associated with obsession with with conventional definitions of economic growth. Mike has worked on a series of sustainable travel projects, including early cycle planning, infrastructure implementation, and promotion and engagement in Bristol, UK. Mike is currently retired and using his time as a cycle campaigner and is a founder of the Taunton Area Cycling Campaign. He's a proud steward of two allotments in an active and an active member of Taunton Transition Town. So Mike, tell us about a little bit more about your involvement in the environmentalist movement. Well, it's funny that you, when I read that question, you know, how did you get involved in the environmental movement? I never really thought of it in those terms. I think there were just certain things that seemed wrong and need, you know, you could see mistakes being made and they needed some sort of response. And I suppose I just got involved almost from an individual kind of motivation and seeing things happen that I just felt were very sort of damaging and wasteful, you know, and, and harmful to both people and, and the environment so that's kind of how I got involved and that was going back to school days really mm-hmm. seeing road schemes being built in the town that I grew up in and businesses being destroyed and people's houses being destroyed and that kind of thing and you know communities being displaced attractive streets being lost uh, and sort of feeling that actually this is not really the right direction to be going in particularly in sort of urban areas so that's kind of how it I think my awareness started Mm -hmm. Um, and then you know got involved in lots of different things on route. So this obviously goes back quite a few decades for you. Yeah, um, yeah. Like you said, as, <laughs> as a child, it started with what I understand is it started with the, the building up around your towns, the degradation of nature around you. Um, yeah, and also not only nature, but also mm-hmm. the built, the urban form as well, the urban structure and sort of, sort of pattern of living that used to exist that was kind of swept away really by big road schemes yeah mm-hmm. I mean, and like, that was when I when I was doing so I was at the top end of school I was about 18 when this was going on yeah 
And you said you took some individual measures. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the stuff you've done? I know that you have um, retrofitted your house and uh, you're taking yeah. care of two allotments. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Um, yeah. Um, well, we um, in the UK, there are lots of terraced houses that have got sort of single wall, you know, what's called solid walls. So they haven't got cavity walls. They're very inefficient houses. Um, so the house we lived in in Bristol, there was an opportunity to sort of get involved in a scheme to put what's called solid wall insulation, which immensely reduces the loss of energy from inside or heat from inside the house going outside. So we did quite a comprehensive sort of scheme of having that done. And we did all the windows, made those super efficient as well and obviously all the sort of lofted slate all those kind of uh complementary sort of measures so that was just something that we're able to do um you know on a, on a sort of personal individual level um sorry solar panels. <laughs> yeah solar panel i'm being prompted here <laughs> solar panel, yeah put solar panels on <laughs> things like that um nice. Yeah, um, I mean, in terms of food growing, what we we used to, we, for a couple of years, we lived in the north northeast of England, and we moved down to Bristol, and the gardens really really small. So I just thought it'd be nice to get, and we call allotments. Do you know mm -hmm. about allotments? Do you have that sort of phrase in America? We do for urban areas. So yeah. I, I don't live in an urban area, but they're becoming um, urban gardens are becoming more common. And so, yeah, yeah. So these are individual plots, lots of them together in a site. And you, you're responsible for just your own plot within that big site. Um, and it was at a time when um, there'd been a big push on allotments as part of the war effort, actually. And then they'd sort of largely fallen out of use in the 1960s and 70s, that kind of thing, and 80s. So it was in the late 80s that we, um, or I, sort of said, well, it'd be good to sort of start growing our own, some food of our own. So for a while, we had an allotment <laughs> on a site where... There was hardly anybody else at all, really. People used to come down and burn furniture and things like that on there, you know, that kind of thing. It was pretty. But then there's been a real resurgence in, in allotments in the UK, and now there are waiting lists and even new sites being created. So, um, so we started off with what I'd not really done food growing before. We started with one, that went quite well. And by the time we left Bristol, we had three three of these plots, wow. and we planted sort of apple trees and things like that. So um, yeah, so that was good. And we had a neighbour as well who took on site, Jason Tuas, who was a really good friend, became a really good friend. And so there was a lot of um, you know cross, literally cross fertilisation of stuff mm -hmm. going on there. So that that's been really nice. And we moved to Taunton about four years ago, and before moving, you know, definitely needed to make sure we could get allotments here, which we have that we've got a couple of allotments here on different sites. Yeah. So it's just it's just lovely being able to grow food more or less throughout the whole year actually, you know, if you plan it. Oh. Do do you grow food yourself? Or? Yes. So my husband yeah. and I we have a we have just under an acre on our for our property and we have wow, nice. four we have five raised beds on in the back where it's a little bit sunny and we have berries and then we've just planted four fruit trees in the front of the yard. So we started with the backyard where which isn't so much on the street and now we're going to go full hog on the front yard. <laughs> and it's all going to be edible as much as possible. That's where all the sun is. So yeah, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. that sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned something that's interesting that um, I didn't write out initially, but uh, the popularity of allotments. So uh, my father was a child during World War II in Glasgow. And so mm. he went through um, rationing and they were they were very inner city. They, they actually were separated from their parents and sent out to the country during the bombing. Yeah. Um, and uh, so he experienced rationing and his father grew potatoes, I think. And you mentioned that they were popular during World War II. Uh, even in the U.S., they had victory gardens. And then after the war, 
as we started to prosper more, that all of that learning and the interest in it was lost. But now we have this uptick in it, which mm. I imagine is um, is driven by the climate crisis. But how do you experience it as you've actually experienced it? Because I, you know, I wasn't around during the war and I can only hear the stories and maybe you weren't either, but my dad has mentioned it as a young child, the allotments, and then they've kind of disappeared. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I wasn't around when they were, they went through that first phase of population. Mm-hmm. Well, I was around, but I wasn't doing allotments. Mm-hmm. So my involvement was really probably at the lowest point of allotments when mm-hmm. People who'd had allotments during that period, they were dying off a lot of them. So all these allotments were becoming vacant, plots were becoming vacant, and nobody was taking them up. Um, So it was very difficult for them to get new tenants for quite a long time. I mean, whether it was related to, I think it was, you know, in the UK, I mean, we've had kind of various sort of waves of green activism Mm -hmm. and even in the 70s you know there were and we've got the center for alternative technology for example in wales which has done a lot of of development work i mean that was established in the 1970s you know so there's been a certain level of consciousness i think there the whole time well since the 70s and it's kind of had the odd surge from time to time and that sort of People have got interest in doing practical things that are more kind of environment, lower impact. And I suppose, you know, sort of the production and the consumption process become closer, don't they? You're Mm -hmm. not remote from the actual production process. So I think it was during that sort of, I mean, even in in the 1980s, there was was a European election, actually, when the Green Party got 20% of the vote, which was previously unheard of, you know, but then it fell back again. Um, So climate was part of it, but I think just general being conscious of what was going on immediately around you and feeling kind of, some people feeling a bit detached from where things were coming from, you know, could they Mm -hmm. trust things that they were buying and eating and consuming? That's sort of come and gone, you know, in waves. It seems to have come back now probably more strongly than it's ever been, you know, because of the climate crisis. But it's been an undercurrent, I think, there in, in society in the UK, you know, mm-hmm. for some time. Yeah, that's interesting. I appreciate hearing those, uh, the, sor- the sort of stories. Uh, and the landscape, I think, is a little bit different in the UK. It's a... Uh, it's a smaller country, fewer people, less land space, but a lot of people in uh, in a smaller land space. Yeah. But I think there yeah. has been a little bit more consciousness because of the, I mean, it's been, it, from my experience, it's been in the news more, it's more talked about. And, it's yeah. ta- and it has been talked about in certain areas of the, of the United States. Of course, California seems to be on the leading edge of that. But then there's other areas of the U.S. where I live in the South where it hasn't really been talked about as much and now people are just starting to wake up to it so it's interesting to hear the differences and how it goes in waves yeah, through, yeah, through time periods yeah mm-hmm. yeah it, it does it's right. very difficult to know what's feeding what in terms of people's heightened awareness i mean i think mm-hmm. the media and the political process haven't really until quite recently not really given it a fantastic amount of attention but then various things, person, individuals internationally who mm-hmm. um, pushed it on very much into the um, forefront of the media and, and in turn, you know, it's got higher up in the political process as well. Um, and it's kind of that, yeah, that sort of happened in the past to some extent, but it's a much bigger surge this time, yeah. So speaking of the um, the political awareness or uh, urgency around environmentalism. The last interview I did was with a, a researcher in Australia, and he w- talked about the detriment that the different Australian administrations have had, where they had a lot of progressive climate policy in the early 2010s, and then with the shift in the administration to conservative, they wiped everything mm-hmm. out. But he highlighted that and I want to get your view on this as a UK citizen, that even throughout the turmoil of Brexit, that 
every party still seem to have some sort of climate policy, whether it's enough, I don't know. But is that a correct observation on his behalf that even though, you know, no matter what you think of Boris Johnson, uh, that there was still some sort of Tory climate policy in place? Is that correct? Oh, yeah, it is correct. I mean, I think the the last government, well, you, you know, we've just got a new Conservative government, but the previous government, they they did sort of, I think they were the first European to sort of go for carbon neutral by 20, 2050, you know. Okay. I think, um, and we've obviously seen quite a big reduction in carbon uh, consumption, which is mainly to do with... Um, our energy supply, coal being pretty much phased out, um, and gas going down, and a surprising increase in renewable energy. But having said that, people are sort of saying, well, to what extent is it because of government policy that's happened, almost in spite of okay. government policy? And we, there are some contradictory things that have been happening. You know, they were sort of opening up the possibility for fracking licenses. Um, well, they just before the general election, they actually said, no, we're going to have a moratorium on fracking. But that was just before the general election. And I think there might have been some seats that could have been quite marginal where fracking was a, an issue locally. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether they what level of... Um, long-term commitment there is that you know remains to be seen they also banned onshore uh, wind farms um, in the uk which is actually the cheapest way of producing renewable energy um so which i suppose has actually meant there's been quite a big focus on offshore and the costs of offshore have come down quite dramatically um with transport, which is the biggest issue, and talking about cyclaxy, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. there's no real national funding going into cycling and walking. There's no dedicated budget that local authorities can use to develop networks. But we have got a very major road building programme. You know, so you've got those... Mm-hmm. So on the, at a broad brush level, there seems to be a strong commitment there. And I think there are individual ministers and MPs who actually are quite committed. Our own MP, um, she's the Minister for Environment, actually. She's not the Secretary of State, but she's a senior within that sort of department. So she supports the Secretary of State. And she's been doing a lot of work around the new legislation that will come in when we leave the EU to try and maintain certain environmental standards that you know we've had under the EU. Um, so, you know, there are some things going on which are positive, but there are some very, there are some inconsistencies there and people are thinking, can we just have more coherence and consistency uh, and can we alli- actually allocate the resources into the right areas to get real change, particularly in transport? Mm-hmm. Well, very interesting. It, it sounds like in some areas the UK can be a positive example of taking the partisanship out of environmental policy. But you very much mentioned that uh, there are some things that are not being addressed. So speaking about cycling and cycling advocacy, that's a passion that you and I both share um, as cyclists. And I'm also advocating on the very local level here for um, cycling safety, cycling and pedestrian safety. So um, you're one of the founders of the Taunton Area Cycling Campaign. Can you tell us um, about the cycling campaign? Yeah, so when I moved to Taunton, I thought I'd get in. Taunton's a sort of town that has fa- fantastic potential for lots of walking and cycling. There's lots of short car journeys. Um, but we do have about double the rate of cycling to work in the UK. I think it's about 9 mm-hmm. and 10% nationally it's about three or four percent so we've got quite a good base but you can see there's a lot of potential for more cycling so i thought we'd get involved in the local cycling advocacy or campaign group as we call it and found that actually there had been groups in the past but there was just nothing happening at the moment so i um i actually organized a kind of online survey and we got about 300 people to fill in the survey and from that i organized a public meeting and 
formed the cycling campaign from that. So that was about three years ago. Um, so it's been, I think we've had started to have quite an impact. Yeah. So our approach is to say we want to work with the local authorities and support them, you know, and encourage them. But we also reserve, you know, the position of being a bit bullshit if we need to be, which we have had to do a few times. So it's, but it seems to work quite well. We seem to be able to maintain that sort of working relationship, but also, you know, go go to the media and do media events when we need to. So, um, yeah. Great. So it's three, yeah. three years in. That's exciting. I'm only just less than a year into trying to organize our group. Oh, so, right. um, yeah. I'm, I'm excited to not only share this interview with um, my sort of um, environmentally aware uh, audience, but um, I want to also share this with the advocacy group I'm uh, working on as yeah. to hold you up as an example and to share more about the Taunton area cycling campaign. So can you describe the difficulties you have faced as a cyclist and then in a broader sense uh, in, within the cycling campaign in and where you live? Um. Well, as a cyclist individually, I mean, there's sort of two aspects to that. I suppose one is just trying to get travel around by bike, and the other aspect is sort of relationships in work context and social context. So, traveling around, um, well, we lived in Birmingham for a while, which is the second biggest city in the UK, and they had a major sort of urban road building program with these vast junctions so if you wanted to cycling from the suburbs into birmingham into the center of birmingham you had to take on these massive free flow junctions i mean i'm sure you're very familiar with those mm -hmm. sorts of layouts in the U u.s because i think a lot of the design ideas came from the u.s you're welcome um, <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> yeah yeah, that's right. yeah. Um, so just feeling you know that it was just so unfair that you these systems had been set up which actually excluded lots of people people who want to walk and cycle um and then obviously you know traveling around sort of relationships with other road users as well um i mean i i tend to find that most drivers are actually okay but there are some pretty aggressive drivers who do take ridiculous risks at you know our personal sort of expense and safety so there's that aspect and when I was first working I, I was sort of working in planning and transport planning when I first started working and I was trying to get them people I was working with interested in doing more for cycling and walking and it was in the context of this city that had just built all these massive roads um, so there, there was a certain amount of hostility, actually, and almost ridicule back in those days. I mean, that was, would have been the sort of late 70s. Yeah, so they're the kind of issues I've had. But as time went on, in terms of the working context, I found more and more people were prepared to be won over, really, and would be quite supportive, you know, in their areas of work, trying to get things done so I, I definitely saw that change happening from talking about cycling and walking in a sort of transport planning working context hostility people not really taking it at all seriously to people actually you know being quite happy to work and you know keen to work and what, what message or what message or group of messages did you find lessen the hostility or just did it happen just with time? Something that I um, trying to advocate and, and similar to you, we're trying to work with local authorities, with law enforcement and with county oh, right. council and, yeah. and these sorts of things. And there's just, there's so many ways to approach it. Like, you know, I have a right to the road. I, don't deserve to die for walking or yeah, biking yeah. or, um, you know, better transportation in all forms leads to economic growth because more people can get to work or, yeah. um, you know, it's better for the environment. Did you find something in your area that resonated with people more or less? Um, 
I don't think there was one single thing. I think, as you say, you, you need to have the sort of range of arguments and, you know, you'll find that in some contexts, some arguments are more persuasive and other, you know, other contexts. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes it's just down to individuals, isn't it? Some people are just a bit more open-minded and receptive and they see you as a human being and they respond in that way. Other people are quite sort of stubborn and, and closed so I mean I wouldn't say it was necess it's necessarily a smooth thing and even now you get people who can be quite sort of rigid and inflexible in their approach but I mean all those arguments that you've used we've been doing some work with our police actually recently um, uh, they've actually got a quite a useful sort of budget we applied for some funding um, called the road safety fund and it's based on fines that people have had for speeding or driving offences. So they recycle this money back into the, the community projects. You can apply funding. So we've, we, um, one of the issues in the UK is what we call the safe pass message. So that's trying to get motorists to understand that they need to give you a wide space when they're overtaking recommended sort of 1.5 meters although that's obviously not possible on every road but um as a sort of general guideline so we got some funding and we are um, we had some high visibility vests and backpack covers with the message on the back you know sort of uh, and the um and that's gone down really well so people have been wearing those and they've been finding it is making a difference it has the word please in it as well. Somebody said to me the other day, actually, when you say please, it does make a big difference, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So stuff like that. The, the police, um, you can you can report an accident, but now they've got sort of mechanism where you can re report in close, close misses. Mm -hmm. um, and they say they're gathering this sort of intelligence so that they can then focus their campaigns in the future. They can sort of target how they put their resources in the future and they will accept camera footage and they do they have done some follow-up uh, from camera footage although there haven't been any injuries as a result of that you know incident so um but again with the police it really depends a lot on who you're dealing with so we've dealt with some people who've been really good and other people who've been quite difficult you know? so <laughs> That's so it all, is very yeah. much two steps forward, one back. But it is two steps forward and only one back, you know. So yeah. yeah. Well that's that's great to hear that they have that they're recycling this the funds that you were yeah. able to access. That's certainly something uh finding funding is 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 been difficult and it's hard. It? We have a we have a very disparate sort of who do you go after? There's a lot of nonprofits out there. And so you can apply for a million different grants and we're getting yeah. there. We're getting there. Um, the, the thing I find about cycling advocacy is when you speak to people about it, there's no one who will say to your face yet that you deserve to be run over because you're on a bike or on foot, you know? No. So like the law enforcement has been very, um, has been good since we've been able to get in touch with them. It took a long time to make a connection and, yeah. and local government. And similarly, um, my husband and I ride with cameras on our bikes cause we have yeah. the close pass issue. And now our sheriff's department has something in place for us to send footage to. And they have knocked on at least one person's door that I know of and told them, oh, right. don't That's do that. Good. So yeah. all it's encouraging. It's, um, mm. and so I'm encouraged to hear about the campaigns that you are doing. Um, so how do you see cycling and cycling infrastructure changing our current transportation landscape? What are you, what would you love to see in an ideal world when it comes to multimodal transportation? <laughs> That's a very big sort of area to talk about. I mean, what we're saying is we, we've got this turn the network blue campaign. I don't know if you've seen it on our no, website, but basically we've looked at all the places we want to join up locally and we've done a very broad brush quality assessment of the links between those two places. I mean, in some cases there might be two links, but, uh, and we've sort of graded it. So blue is where there's a reasonable connection that you'd feel fairly safe on. Red is where most people wouldn't attempt to cycle because there's just, it, you know, it would be so difficult unless you're very, very confident. So our campaign is turn the network 
blue. And what we're trying to lobby the local authorities to do is to go from um, a major, what's called a major scheme bid or a scheme bid to central government, which prioritises walking and cycling. In the past, they've always gone for road type schemes. Um, and actually, we're quite pleased because they're just about to put a bid in for some funding um, to central government, which is focused entirely on a core part of this turn the network blue network. So I think they're sort of coming. I mean, it's not just us. I mean, we've got, you know, they've declared climate emergencies and they've got public health issues they're trying to address as well. But I think we've sort of helped to push it along. So they are now seriously looking at how they can access funds externally to improve the network locally. Uh, we've got two tiers. We've got a highway authority, which is the upper tier, and then we've got the planning authority, which is the lower tier. And again, we're working with them quite a bit because there's quite a lot that they can do. And they're securing funds through the planning process that they're going to be putting into walking, cycling infrastructure as well. So slowly we're starting to get to a point where money is being earmarked, being sought through bids, which can come to a reasonable sum. And we've been working on a thing called a local cycling and walking infrastructure plan, Elswip for short, because it's a real mouthful. <laughs> and our group did about 25 route audits during the summer, which have fed into this plan which the highway authority have submitted to the government. So we're hoping that some money will come from that as well. So uh, I th what we're sort of saying is turn the network blue. That will give you a kind of core network of routes. And then within the urban areas, er all housing to be within 400 metres of that, that network. Um, I mean, that network could be achieved through a number of means, you know, looking at the Dutch sort of model, for example. So obviously on main roads, you do need segregation on higher mm -hmm. speed main roads. But on lower speed roads, in residential areas, um, you can close roads off and create gaps for cyclists, and that can form very good routes um, and encourage cycling because the driving alternatives become longer. So it will be a, a mixture of, measures i think from that, that point of view it's a question of how bold and ambitious the local authorities will be when it comes to actually doing the detailed design one of the big issues for us is the detailed design of cycling infrastructure as well we have a certain amount of cycling infrastructure in taunton but it's not very well designed so every time you get to a junction or a side road you have to sort of more or less give way Whereas if you're on the road, you just keep going, don't you? And mm -hmm. Cyclists don't want to keep losing momentum and having to having a conflict point every few hundred metres. So we're doing a lot of work. And again, the thinking in the UK is moving in the right direction now to have much better standards for designing cycling infrastructure. So what it would look like, I suppose, would be something like the sort of Dutch style of infrastructure on the ground and treatment of junctions um and we think probably we could at least double or maybe sort of treble so from the nine percent journey to work if that say went up to 25 get up to 25 percent that would have a major impact um on transport conditions environmental quality public realm the economy as you say you know People, more people having access. We've got a, quite a weak uh, public transport system mm -hmm. here, so there are no no buses in the evening or on Sunday, or very few on Sunday. So for people who don't have access to a car, it's quite limited. If you could ride a bike, um, you suddenly can get to far more things. And um, obviously, e-bikes are quite a significant part of the picture as well because. We've got quite a big sort of rural hinterland with quite sizable set settlements, but they're, you know, sort of five, ten miles from the centre of Taunton, which for many people, even with good cycling infrastructure, would be quite, um, you know, a bit of an ask to do those sorts of journeys. But with e-bikes, suddenly become quite possible. So, you know, there's quite a lot of things coming together, I think, which could be possible. What we really need, though, is for our government to have a, 
an allocated budget, national budget, so that um, the local authorities can plan ahead with certainty that resources will be available rather than having to go for these one-off bids every five minutes. With, you know, we call them beauty contests because that's what they are. All these local authorities are competing with each other and it takes up a lot of their resource and sometimes they don't even get any money out of it. You know, and it's not a good way to do long-term planning. So, uh, so in a roundabout, hopefully that's covered the question in a roundabout way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, um, it excites me to hear um, the process, the progress you guys have made and then the issues you're facing. We have, uh, where I live specifically, we have very similar issues, um, except we have even, even less infrastructure transportation-wise. Our entire, well, our entire country was built around the car and where I live specifically is completely car-centric. We don't have any public transportation. There are no buses so, and we don't even have sidewalks in my town. So you'll see people walking through the grass to get to their job. And then yeah. um, it, it's not, if there's someone with disabilities, that's even worse. And if you're an old, older person and you are unable to drive, you are basically relegated to your house or the care home, which is, yeah. uh, is really, um, really sad. And like you said, the multimodal aspect and having a bike and having e-bikes. Um, I don't ride an e-bike myself, but I can certainly see, (laughs) I certainly see the benefits. My husband and I were in Switzerland this summer and, um, you know, hills everywhere, not just in the Alps, but absolutely everywhere. And we were huffing up this really steep hill in the town we were staying in. And this older woman, when zipping by us on the e-bike and I was like, Oh, but you know, she was doing her shopping in a very, you know, a fantastic way to get out and no need to take the car for those short journeys. Whereas where I live right now, if you want to go, um, I think the food store is three miles away from me. You have to take the car. Uh, I have run there before, but it is taking your life in your hands, which is um, not a pleasant experience. So yeah, yeah. And I think we have the same issues, like you said, if there is a centralized fund or a um, directive coming from a centralized government that disperses Mm -hmm. it out instead of exactly what you mentioned. For us, it's like applying for grants and it takes a lot of time and then the funds can be quite small as well. So what what can you do with $10,000 or seventy five thousand dollars now i wouldn't turn down any of that money of course but when it comes to making significant changes and that long-term planning that's needed um you know it has to be taken into account from the beginning of road planning and road restoration projects and a ten thousand dollars isn't going to do that i can't do anything with that you know so no no definitely not no i mean another thing we we've been trying to do and it's a bit of a stopgap before we get all the um, infrastructure is one-to-one confidence sessions with people. Um, and we've managed to access, again, very small amounts of money, you know, £1,000 here, 500 there. But to, uh, we've got a thing called bikeability in the UK. I don't know if you've heard about this. But basically, um, there's three stages, and it's a sort of nationally recognised standard for training people up to certain standards in terms of their cycle cycling competence and skills so you start off with one which is the sort of primary uh school kids and they that's just in the playground and but level three is aimed at people aimed at sort of um, giving confidence and skills to people who can go out and cycle on the road system you know and a bit more confident in sort of dealing with junctions and and traffic so we've been doing a bit of that and that's it's the uptake has been 100% for women, which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's really, that is interesting. Really about 40 people, but you know, it's 40 people that are now cycling that wouldn't have been doing before. Yes. That's actually um, something that I want to approach our county council about is that yeah. the amount of people 
that say to me, I don't, I would like to ride on the roads, but I'm just too scared. Yeah. It's many times it's women. I mean, there's men as well. I know plenty of male road cyclists who say I only ride a mountain bike now because I won't go on the road, but yeah. especially women. Um, and they do have, uh, they completely have a right to be scared. Um, oh, yeah. just from anecdotal experiences, I feel like I get buzzed more than my husband does. Because maybe I'm not so much of a physical threat. And there was actually a study done at the University of Minnesota, and I believe it was last year, that um, had male and female cyclists going out and recording incidents. And the women did experience more incidents, unfortunately. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I'm all about getting women back out on the road. Yes. Um, it's, I mean, the bike had a huge part in the feminist movement back in the early um, 20th century, you know, it gave women who had no means of getting yeah. around to get out on their yeah, bike. Yeah. And so that excites me as well <laughs> as yeah. a feminist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, what you're doing is, uh, I mean, sometimes we think, you know, there are a lot of barriers to overcome to make progress, but your context is actually so much more difficult than ours. I mean, if you're living in an area that's not even got well, we call them footways rather than sidewalks, mm -hmm. but you know, same thing. Um, yeah, I mean, that is just so basic. I mean, here within the urban areas, and even sometimes between settlements, there will be narrow strips that people can walk along. They're not particularly pleasant to walk along, but they do exist, you know. I mean, yeah, so your context is so. <laughs> yeah, but we just got, we have to keep at it. Well, what's, yeah. inter what's interesting uh, for my locality specifically is that they did invest in a um, bicycle, pedestrian and greenway plan. They, they spent a lot of money to have people come out and make suggestions. And it's a huge 168 page document that I've read. But what's uh, it's exciting, the plans, but what's disappointing is that it was published in April 2013. And as you know, we're currently in 2020 and nothing has happened. So I feel like, uh, at least in my locality, that there's a lot of lip service. If people get like, why aren't you looking at this? And they throw us a bone and then nobody holds them accountable to follow through. Yeah, uh, yeah. We have a one mile bike lane in the next town over that was painted in 2012, but it's only like three feet wide so you're in the gutter and they don't repaint it and they don't clean it so it's it's effectively unusable and i've i've told yeah, local be, government yeah. that you know it would be better just to not have that bike lane because drivers assume that you have mm. to be in it mm. and if you're not they get uh they get angry so mm. um it's an uphill battle but i know i think cyclists of the world unite and we'll keep encouraging each other and um, I would certainly want to continue following the Taunton area cycling campaign and um, stealing ideas from you guys that we can hopefully implement over here and also get the excitement level up a little bit more as an example, because it can be tough, I think, um, with some of the people uh, who are in my group to and myself to keep the mm. energy going when, the, yeah. when it's so far uphill. But um, yeah. it will get it done. <laughs> Yeah. Do but, you have uh, um, any kind of regular meetings with the highways people? Do you have any kind of regular meetings with them where you can discuss things and maybe get things on, on board? Um, so it's very hard to um, speak to anyone at what's called SCDOT, South Carolina Department of Transportation. Uh, I, I have some personal connections that advocate on our behalf. So I'm happy for mm -hmm. that. But what, yeah. S, what SCDOT has done has pushed it back down to the local governments, which is why I'm trying mm. to uh, get in front of the county council. Um, yeah. They say that they, they need to hear from local government in order to do anything. So oh, you know, I see. we'll work on yeah. it. We'll keep going. Yeah. Well, there's always that sort of passing back sort of thing. Mm -hmm. yep. yeah. yeah. I'm like, I'm like, give me a name and I'll speak to everyone and then you won't be able to pass yeah. the buck anymore <laughs> because yeah. I have spoken to everyone and it will happen. Um, something else that was mentioned in your bio is the Taunton transition town. I've heard this uh, yeah. before, yeah. but I don't actually know what the Taunton transition town is. Do you mind um, telling us about that? 
Well, it was something that was born out of what's called the transition movement. Do you know about the transition movement? Give us a give us a history of it, because I don't know enough about it. Well, I'm, my history is a bit vague, because I've only really got involved in the last two or three years. But it all started probably about nearly 10 years ago. And at the time, it was to do climate, but it was also based on peak, what was thought at the time to be peak oil, although that's kind of passed a little bit as a sort of pressing sort of threat. Um, and the Transition Town movement was to encourage, enable sort of groups in towns around the country to set up their own kind of practical grassroots project-based groups. So you'd actually do projects locally. So it could be around promoting cycling, but a lot of it was focused on um, garden food. Mm-hmm. So we've had this thing called um, Incredible Edible. Um, so the idea is having sort of bits of land in urban areas where it don't get used for anything. And it's kind of guerrilla gardening, really, taking them over and planting um, vegetables for people to, partly just for people to sort of see where vegetables come from, <laughs> but also small quantities of herbs and things like that that people can take. So Taunton Transition Town kind of was established, I think, as part of that kind of wave of of uh, the transition movement right at the beginning. And there were some, obviously, some very dynamic people involved in setting it up at the time. And they had all sorts of projects going on. I mean, they were doing street by street projects where you were kind of trying to work with other neighbours to work out how you could reduce your sort of energy impact and reduce your transport those sorts of things one-to-one advice and conversation um and actually when i first came to taunton i went to the first meeting and they're about to wind up the group actually um <laughs> well give it once you've got a structure for a group you don't really want to throw it away because new people might come in and so in the end, it was decided to sort of keep it going for another year. And then more people did start to get involved. So, um, yeah, so I think most of the work we're doing at the moment, we're trying to set up a thing called a repair cafe. Um, we, we've got a date to start that in April. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that people bring in their, their sort of broken things and get them fixed by knowledgeable people who can do that sort of thing um so it'll be doing things like electronic stuff and computers and fabrics that kind of thing um Mm -hmm. and there's been a a growing project as well growing vegetables in quite a nice location next to the river and um some events we've run film film shows you know some of the sort of current environmental films that have been coming out um and we had a big event in, in the town centre called Going Green. So there are a whole range of activities there. People could sort of drop in and get advice and information. There was music going on and refreshments. So, yeah, so sort of range of things. I mean, some groups have been, have done a lot, lot more actually and have become um, sort of little incorporated companies in their own right and managed to access quite a lot of money. There's a guy called Bob Hopkins. He's really thought to be the founder. Rob. Rob Hopkins. Rob Hopkins. He's the founder of the transition movement. So it's worth looking him up online, actually, just to get. He's based in a town called Totnes in Devon, okay. um, which is sort of seen as being one of the centres of the transition town movement. Yeah, so Taunton Transition Town is just one of hundreds of towns that have set up these groups. That sounds exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. The repair cafe is is exciting. I think um, I know I've heard of movements or like uh, in your neighborhood, you can have a shared tools reception, I guess. And that, you know, I, those sort of like community based grassroots cooperative activities are super exciting. I can't say that we're there yet in our neighborhood, but um, one, we did have an environmental win in the town next door, they just banned single-use plastic bags for the whole town. Oh, really? uh, and so uh, that's, that's a movement that's happening in the U.S., ban single yeah. plastic, single-use plastic and the straws. And I think, you know, while it's not going to save the planet, it's 
it's getting people to think a little bit differently because they are forced to not use the single use plastic. Do you guys mm. have that movement happening so much? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's been in the last couple of years, um, you, you, did you see the blue planet series at all? Yeah. I yes. mean, that's sort of raised the consciousness dramatically around plastics and, and actually there was a very strong focus on plastics and reducing single use plastics. Uh, and it was almost as if it was almost being too much of a focus and people weren't looking at the other issues, but, um, but in terms of mobilising, well, articulate, I think, you know, people sort of think these things, don't they? They think, oh, that is, it's not good. We've got all this plastic. But they need something to, arti to articulate it and almost get a mass voice. And that happened, I think, with Blue Planet and David mm -hmm. Attenborough. Um, yeah, so it's very, very strong. I mean, when they, I think it was probably about three years ago, they started, the government said, you've got to charge for carrier bags in supermarkets. Mm -hmm. um you know and some people are really grumbly about that but i mean it's just in the past now and everybody's just used to it and it's all very straightforward yeah we're um we're four weeks into our plastic bag ban so we still have oh. a little a little bit of grumbling here and there in the parking lot about having to pay for a paper bag. I've, I've been bringing my own bags for a while now. And you're yeah. right. You know, people, we get stuck in our ways. We, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. We don't want to make changes. Um, but once you do make the small changes, it gets easier. And, and then you realize, yeah. you know, yeah. there weren't uh, these plastic bags 50 years ago and somehow everyone was just fine, you know, and <laughs> we didn't have all these plastic bottles but we somehow did okay. And that's where it's interesting speaking to my father um, about when he was a child during World War II. And he was like, we used to have to take all the glass to the store. And I'm like, yes, that's yeah. what we need to get back to. But his generation saw the single use as such a relief that they didn't have to do that. So I find, mm -hmm. you know, my father and his wife there in their mid 80s, they're extremely reluctant to this change. Um, really but I have to, yeah. yeah, I have to just help them out. I got them some bags and stuff. So <laughs> they yeah. were so stressed about it. It's okay. We'll get through it. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I suppose people probably sort of um, relate that kind of behavior to quite frugal, difficult times, don't they? You know. Exactly. Yeah. Single use was this like, um, yeah, single use was this luxury, you know, especially yeah. my dad very much. Uh, watched the American movies back then and wanted to move and live in America, which is hence why I live in America. <laughs> but, you know, he, that sort of disposable culture was seen as such a luxury. Um, and so it's, it's interesting the different perceptions and how that affects people's, um, affects people's actions and what they think is, is okay. It's funny, actually, when my husband and I started composting Four years ago, I said to my dad, you know, we used to have three bags of rubbish go out every week, and now we only have one bag. And he was like, oh, do you save money? Is that why you do it? And I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm like, it's because it doesn't go to the landfill. But, you know, he doesn't think beyond that. So mm, it's funny yeah. that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my dad's um, in his 90s. And I remember when I was a kid, we used to go to what they call an off-license where you go and buy beer and things like that and mm -hmm. fizzy drinks. And I remember we were taking the bottles back and the guy who ran the shop saying, actually, in a few weeks' time, you won't be, won't be doing this any longer because it's going to be disposable from from now. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I do remember my dad and I talking about this and both of us sort of saying, well, that's a bit stupid, isn't it, really? Because that's going to create so much waste and you know there's kind of little conversations when you're younger they sort of stay with you really just little events do stay mm -hmm. with you. yeah exactly that being able to to dispose of it was a luxury it's similar I actually um I lived in Venezuela for a year in 2006 and similarly if you buy beer you buy it in a crate in the glass bottle and you keep the glass bottle and you take it back and it's yeah. not due to environmental reasons. It's due to just the lack of glass. So it goes back yeah. to the beer company and it's washed and it's reused. And yeah. so it's not an environmental initiative, but um, 
you know, that being able to drink a beer and throw the glass out is seen as something, you know, fancy. <laughs> Whereas I would love to, we keep our glass, like I have all this glass. I don't know what to do with it. We're trying to figure out what to do with it. It's, it's harder for me. You just don't to have a recycling, you don't have a recycling system. Not where I live. <laughs> Not where I live, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, we have had recycling, you know, think basic things like glass and paper for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And now they're sort of moving into much bigger, you know, bigger range of, materials are being recycled so the uk has not been too bad about that yeah recycling of food waste is mm-hmm. and they they convert that into compost that can be used you know um i mean we we compost us most of our food. we don't really i don't eat meat my wife eats a bit of meat but not same, much. So we same don't, here <laughs> yeah so um, we don't really, all our food waste is easy. We can put it in the compost bins and it just mm-hmm. produces all this fantastic stuff that you can use to feed the ground with, which is wonderful. I know. I, I really <laughs> love composting. Resource. I see these tubs of green stuff and think, great, that's a resource, you know. I totally agree with you. Once you get into composting, there's something very fulfilling about yeah. uh, taking your waste um, and it, it, it becomes food for the, for the food that you grow, you know. And yeah. um, one of the funny things is we always get volunteers out of a compost pile. And so, you know, three years ago it was cherry tomatoes and last year it was butternut squash and you know they're just we had like 30 butternut squash that came out of the compost heap from grocery bought one grocery bought butternut squash it was still in there yeah yeah exactly the seeds are in there because i didn't cook it i'd I'd done it raw and it's just very much the circle of life and it's exciting that um instead of something going to landfill you're creating more and leaving it better (laughs) than you found it yeah well, I want to wrap it up with one okay. final question for you, Mike. Um, what advice would you give someone who has just woken up to the climate crisis? Well, don't be demoralized by some of the more negative stuff you hear going on, because I think as we've discussed just now, and if you sort of multiply that across the whole world, there's a lot of um, positive activity going on, and a lot of optimism in different areas. So I think we just need to sort of um, think about bringing that optimism and positivity together, don't we, to sort of try and counter some of the negative responses that you inevitably get. You know, China, if China doesn't change or the US doesn't change mm-hmm. dramatically, it's all for us in the UK, we're 1% of CO2 emissions. What's the point? Sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But actually, we've all got a contribution to make. Um, some of the changes fairly easy to make as we talked about i mean transport is obviously one of the most difficult ones um i mean the uk co2 emissions on transport haven't come down they're increasing so i think do a few easy things and then perhaps try to think about transport you know walking and cycling more it doesn't have to be as difficult as you might think i know it's difficult in the us context because you've got just mainly roads that are very very dangerous roads but in uk context often you can work out quieter routes they might be a bit longer and you can get advice and support you know there is a a community around people there will give good advice and support Um, and even things on sort of fixing your bike you know there are projects that can help you get that done or enable you to get cheap bikes so you know i suppose i'd sort of say Okay, do do the plastics and do the recycling and grow a bit of food if you can and make sure you've got low energy light bulbs and all that kind of thing. But sooner or later, you know, start thinking about how you get around and benefit yourself by using active transport. You know, you get the health benefits, you do your bit to reduce CO2 emissions. Um, and actually, it can be quite enjoyable. Well, it is. It's very enjoyable too. So, um, <laughs> Yeah. So, well, thank you, Mike. I think you've highlighted some um, some great grassroots organizing in Taunton <laughs> behind cycling and the transition town, and um, what you've done as an individual, and what we can all do as individuals to um, to just take some action. I think individual responsibility 
while the problem is quite large and a single person isn't going to solve it, taking uh, ownership of your individual actions empowers me at least to do more things that would help a wider group of people and at least organize people. And as you mentioned, talk to other people, get support um, and not be so singular on your own. It's easier when there's more people doing the same thing to get something done. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And you're not alone. You are, as you say, you're part of a a lot of people who want to see things improve. Um, Yeah. So there's, yeah, just talk to people about it really and, and work out who can give you support and who you can support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate it, Mike. Thank you so much for taking the time and chatting with us. Um, I look forward to following this uh, Taunton Cycling campaign yeah. and sharing this interview with people. And uh, I wish you guys the best luck. I, I do think I'll be following you and getting ideas to hopefully improve where, what we're facing where I live. So. <laughs> Great. Well, yeah, well, very good luck to you as well. I mean, as I said before, I think you're obviously facing some very, um, you know, your context is is very, very challenging. Um, So it's fantastic that you're so enthusiastic and (laughs) determined to have an impact, which I'm sure you will. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Well, thank you, Mike. Have a wonderful evening and uh, we will be in touch. Thank you. Okay. All the best. Bye, Fiona. Bye. Bye. Mm-hmm.